Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This week's sponsor is Book of the Month Club again. Book of the Month Club is a service which I think is like the best thing ever, where you get to pick from five books each month uh, to get whichever one is your favorite. Book of the Month Club is offering Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books listeners an exclusive offer of signing up for just $5 for your first book. This is not to be missed. Bookofthemonthclub.com. Go check it out. And many of the books on this podcast have been Book of the Month Club picks. Uh, so go, just go buy them. Enter code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y, for this exclusive offer. I'm here today with Vashti Harrison, who's the children's book author and illustrator of Little Leaders, Bold Women in Black History, Little Dreamers, Visionary Women Around the World, and most recently, Little Legends, Exceptional Men in Black History, plus board book Dream Big Little One and Think Big Little One. She has also illustrated many other books, including Solway by Academy Award winner Lupita Nyong'o, which is now a New York Times bestseller, CC Love Science, Hair Love, and others. Vashti is also a filmmaker. Her films center around her family's history and culture in the Caribbean. Originally from Virginia, Vashti earned a BA from the University of Virginia and an MFA in film and video from CalArts. She currently lives in Brooklyn, and I met Vashti at the Brooklyn Book Festival and watched her do this illustrator smackdown, which my kids thought was basically the coolest thing ever. So I'm super excited to have Vashti come over and talk to her about her work. Hi, Vashti. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thanks for coming in. My kids and I loved seeing you with the Illustrator Smackdown at the Brooklyn Book Festival. <laughs> and we were trying to grab like your pictures of dogs. Do you remember when you were drawing the, didn't you draw the 
Do you remember what I'm talking about? <laughs> I remember drawing a monster. Maybe with it wasn't like, a dog. With 11 arms and the number pi, or 11 eyes, oh, yeah. pi amount yeah. of arms. and That's true. Yeah. And I remember drawing, I had to draw myself in 30 seconds and then take another 30 seconds to turn myself into Abraham Lincoln. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Oh my gosh, too funny. Well, we were all very impressed. <laughs> so tell me about how you got started as a children's book illustrator and then also author. I'll try the shortest version okay. of this story. I didn't study illustration. I don't have a background in formal painting training or anything, but I did study film. And I went to California Institute of the Arts to study experimental cinema. And that school's really famous for being the Disney School of Animation. And so I was paying so much money to be there. I was like, of course, I'm going to take classes in every department, including this animation department. And I was in my final year, and I thought this drawing class might be fun while I'm finishing up my thesis film. And turns out it was not as fun as I thought it would be. It was sort of just so intimidating, but also kind of rekindled this love I had for drawing. But I started, and I realized I wasn't as good as I used to be. I used to draw a lot when I was a kid, but I stopped when I started making movies. And I, it was the first time where I thought, oh my goodness, I'm not good at this. Oh, stop. But it, I mean, it couldn't have been that bad. Really? I mean, I was pretty bad. I mean, a lot of people don't want to believe this, but the, the fact is if you don't practice something, you're not going to be good. So I always tell kids, you know, if you're a really fast runner and you stop running for like five years, what do you think will happen? You're not going to be as fast as you once were. It's not exactly like riding a bike. And so it was so clear to me that if I do practice, I will get better. So I kind of just kept it a secret. I started drawing every day and I just wanted it to be a part of my own personal practice to, to feel better about this thing, this form of expression that I used to really love. Did you ever think like, I'm not good at this anymore? Like what made you think if I practice, I'm going to get better again? It was sort of knowing that at one point I was, you know, proud of the drawings that I could make and I could see that my hand wasn't doing everything that I thought my brain was sending it. So it was just so apparent to me that it's not about talent. It's just about practice and mm -hmm. skill. Some people believe that, you know, some people can draw and some people can't. The fact of the matter is I think most of us, at least in America, kind of stopped drawing after the fifth grade or after the sixth grade when you are stopped or you're, you don't, you're not forced into art classes. You can choose your own electives. And so, you know, most of us never keep practicing and some people do and some people keep going. And I was noticing in this animation program, these kids are like, they're undergraduate students and they're so talented. They're so good. And like notoriously, they don't finish their degrees. They like get hired by Walt Disney before they're even 20 years old. And I was like, no, yeah, if I kept drawing every day at that rate, you know, I might have been as good as them. And so it didn't intimidate me. It just sort of, you know, challenged me. Meanwhile, I finished grad school, I finished my films, got a job in the film industry, and I was supposed to, you know, work my day job and come home and edit my movies and keep submitting to festivals. And the only thing I wanted to do was draw. I still didn't tell anyone, but I, you know, as it goes in television, when the end of the season comes, everyone, a lot of people get laid off and hopefully get hired again after hiatus for the next season. My show got canceled and it wasn't really easy for me to roll over into another show. And I thought, this sounds crazy, but, you know, do I keep trying to 
grind in the film industry or do I go after this crazy thing? This illustration thing is the only thing that's making me happy these days. And so it seemed a little bit terrifying and a little bit irresponsible, but I moved home with my parents to try to figure out how to become an illustrator. And I joined SCBWI, the Society of Children's Books Writers and Illustrators, to try to learn about you know the publishing industry as much as I could. And fortunately, it worked out very quickly for me, way faster than I could have anticipated. But I read that you entered some sort of hashtag draw this competition and then you won. Yeah. Is that what yeah. So it was only a few months into, I mean, I, once I got laid off, I applied for a lot of other jobs and I was like, you know, looking to get to some sort of like into the publishing industry, but I didn't believe that I could be an illustrator. I thought, you know, I'll do something kind of illustration adjacent. Maybe (laughs) I really liked books and I thought, you know, I really love designing the interiors of books and I taught myself how to do that. And I thought this will be good. It's like, you know, it's business, it's businessy and it's creative enough that I can not feel like I'm giving up everything, you know, to just go off and be an artist forever. Because I've just felt intimidated by, you know, taking such a deep plunge. But after applying for a number of jobs and not getting anywhere, probably around March 2016, so about six months after I got laid off, I officially, officially decided to stop looking for other jobs and move home to my small hometown in Virginia and just try to do this illustration thing. And if I'm going to do it, I need to figure out this whole kid-lit world. So I joined SCBWI, and I read all their literature. I listened to their podcasts, and I said, okay, now's the time. You have to get your work out there. And so they have these little competitions, one of them called SCBWI Draw This, where they you know, give you a prompt and... You're supposed to just draw a single drawing and and submit it, post it online. And the prize is to get your illustration placed in the monthly newsletter. And so it was only about a month and a half into like really feeling like I'm actually trying to be an illustrator now. So I submitted at the end of May. And on June 1st, I opened up my email and I scrolled down and my drawing was there. And I was like, oh my gosh. That's so cool. Like validation from this organization. It was so encouraging. It felt like, wow, yeah, keep going. This this is the right choice. I had no idea what was coming around the corner. Literally the next day, June 2nd, I opened up my email and I had an email from an art director at Simon & Schuster asking me if I was interested in illustrating a manuscript. And I was like, whoa, 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 (laughs) slow down. I know I wanted this, but I didn't know that it was going to happen that fast. I, I was terrified. But I was like, okay, well, I said I'm going to do this, and I have to treat this like work, so I'm going to do it. And it's just been really intense and go, go, go since then. A few months later, I met my agent, and then a few months after that, I had the idea for Little Leaders. And before that year was over, Little Leaders was out and on the New York Times bestsellers list, so it's just been go, go, go since then. Oh, my. So how long has gone by since that June 1st, that first June 1st? Was that last year or the year? No, no, no. That was 2016. So, uh, you know. I know. I'm like, how did you get all these books out in that (laughs) amount of time? There's no way. Yeah. June 2016, I got the call, and that was for Festival of Colors. That was my first book I illustrated. In October, I met my agent. And then February 2017, I had the idea for Little Leaders. Um, And tell me about that series. What what gave you that idea? Yeah, so it was Black History Month, and— I was looking for another way to kind of challenge myself to do something in terms of my art and keep me going and keep me interested. And I sort of remember feeling like all through elementary school, middle school and high school, we would hear the same stories during Black History Month so much so that it kind of just felt like 
like a chore, like, okay, here's the month where we read the same stories over and over again. And I thought, no, there's got to be more of a reason to celebrate this. So I was looking at the history. And when Carter G. Woodson founded Negro History Week in 1926, the sentiment was to celebrate the stories that have been long neglected throughout history. So I thought, okay, well, here's a great opportunity. Every day for this month, I'm going to post a drawing of a Black woman in American history because they kind of sit at this crossroads of being doubly neglected throughout history. So I started with Sojourner Truth, who was someone I had known about as, you know, an abolitionist, as kind of a figure, but hadn't really considered her story as a person. And I drew this little drawing. I wanted to create these kind of simple figures that I could draw different outfits and clothes on and kind of turn them into anybody, kind of like an every girl. And I thought this would be fun because I love drawing clothes. I love drawing hair. And also here's an opportunity to learn about cool people. I had no idea how like kind of deeply it would affect me because I guess I had never realized that I'm a very empathetic person. And I and I was reading her story at like four o'clock in the morning. I was going to post this drawing. Usually I like draw late at night and I post something and I go to sleep. And I was reading about her and hadn't really thought so deeply about her experience as a person. So she was enslaved in upstate New York and the emancipation rollout was happening across the states and it happened in the North first, right? And so she had been promised her freedom by her slave owner. And so, you know, she felt like she knew that one day she was going to be free, but obviously People were still enslaved in the South, and her her slave owner, you know, saw an opportunity to capitalize on what he considered his assets and his capital and sold her five-year-old son to a plantation in Alabama. And that's over a thousand miles away. And, you know, it just, like, shook me because I don't know how I would get from here, from Manhattan to Alabama in 2019, you know, with no access to any resources, with no money, with no vehicle, and and knowing that the color of my skin would criminalize me once I passed a certain point. And I was just kind of just crying my eyes out to know that she felt this horrible fear. And amazingly, she got him back. She was one of the first black women in America to successfully file a lawsuit against a white person and win. And she got him back. And it's just like so overwhelming to understand, you know, how terrifying that would feel. Could you imagine being that little kid? Could you imagine being that mother? Could you even, I don't know, any part of it seems so overwhelming. So I was I was excited by this feeling of like, yeah, I'm going to get something out of doing this project. So I posted it, and the next morning, I saw that people were really into it. And I thought, okay, cool, they like it too. So I felt energized to keep going. And it was just about three days into Black History Month that I was like, I asked my agent, do you think there's a potential for a book here? And she was like, yeah, I was going to ask you. And we took the idea to a couple of different publishers, and a couple were interested. And before the month was over, I signed this three-book deal Little Brown. And so that was February 2017. The book came out November 2017. And each the next one came out the next year, November 2018. Yeah, November. And then the third one will be out this November. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishful podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. So sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic Tongue Twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's been wild. That's amazing. You should like pat yourself on the back. <laughs> it's like a miracle. I mean, it's like, it's super impressive. Yeah, I mostly just took a nap for the last three months because I'm so exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> and I read somewhere that you felt like you might not be the best person to write the third, uh, the third of these, of the books in the series. Why was that? Exceptional Men, Black History, you felt like yeah. you, you didn't want to put yourself in that situation. You know, go well, ahead. The first book was called Little Leaders, Bold Women in Black History, and it came from this kind of personal place of feeling like I wanted to showcase these stories for young girls that kind of, you know, for maybe even like a young me. It came from such a personal desire to showcase women from many different fields of study. Because when I was a kid and I said I wanted to be an artist, I thought, you know, that only meant one thing. And I thought, okay, well, artists are painters, right? So actually, I don't like painting that much. So I guess I can't be an artist. I had no idea that there were all these other fields that existed, like film and photography. And I always wonder what would have happened if I had entered filmmaking much earlier than I did in college. And obviously we ask kids all the time, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, you know, I wanted kids to be kind of empowered and know the knowledge of all these different opportunities. I don't want them to have to know right now, but I know that they're going to be asked eventually. And so when they are ready to make that choice, I wanted to showcase here all these wonderful stories about an engineer and an astronaut. We have our doctors and our lawyers too, but there's also a photographer, a filmmaker, a painter, poets and novelists. So there are lots of things in between. And that second book, Little Dreamers, Visionary Women Around the World, was really, you know, you know, if the little black girl in me, if if Little Leaders was for that little black girl who wanted to see all these wonderful women who looked just like her do incredible things, the little artist in me wanted to see all of these different types of art in different ways, or the little creative in me, really, because, you know, Visionary Women was about 
creativity and how it's exhibited through science and through art and and how when those things come together, amazing things can happen. And so both of those books were really personal. And, you know, in my previous work as a filmmaker and as a fine artist, I made work that was for me. It wasn't necessarily for anyone else. And I, the last thing I would have considered, you know, really in that field as a f- professional fine artist is a consumer because it was all about expression and, and, and meaning making. But children's books are about the reader. And it took me, you know, writing two books to really get that. So when I first wrote, when I wrote the first book, I was like, no, I have no idea. I have no idea if I could write another book because it was just about thinking about those little girls that were basically little me's, right? So when they said, so when's the one for boys coming out? I thought, uh, I don't know, it's not coming from me because I don't have, I don't, I don't know that experience. I don't feel the drive or the urge to write that story because I didn't feel it within myself. But over the past couple of years, obviously, the experience has totally changed me. I go to schools and I talk to kids and I am constantly thinking about, you know, I think tech, definitely reading Working, reading, doing all the research and writing the second book, I had to kind of enter these different experiences and try to put myself in the shoes of these women, like someone like Monir Farman Farmayan, a woman from Iran, and, and try to imagine her experience. Or Qian Zheng Wu, who was an experimental physicist. Like, I don't know anything about physics, but I was trying to imagine what it would be like to be her. And how, how did you find all the people... Like, how did you pick all all of these visionary leaders? And Mm. a number of the artists I definitely knew about through having studied art history and and watched a lot of films and and kind of lived in the art world for a while. But it was a mixture of research and looking just looking through these old books of like, you know, I, I tried to find specific ones that were like. Um, not necessarily women in science, but unsung heroes of people of color. And I asked a lot of people, you know, there was an artist that I wanted to write about, and I wasn't sure that their experience really felt like it fit the vibe of visionary women. And so I I spoke to an Iranian friend of mine, and I thought, well, you know, what do you think about this person's story? And she was like, you know, I feel what you're saying. You should really check out Monir. And I had no idea who, who, who they were at that time. And so I was really thankful of having friends I could, you know, rely on for, for actual suggestions. So it was a mixture of things. My parents are super into it. And so my dad would always call me up and be like, oh, you should check out this person. You should check out that person because he's always watching the news or watching the History Channel, reading something. So I relied heavily on my friends and family for a lot of suggestions and just doing, trying to do obscure research. Like one person I found out about because I had seen this movie and I thought, wow, the costume design in this is incredible. And I, I just did some research and I found her and I had no idea. And so I thought, this is, I, I need to write about her. So those were all like, they came from kind of a more personal experience, but I had to put myself in, in these experiences that I hadn't, you know, hadn't 
understood before. And so I think that that was kind of the transition that led me to really getting how I could approach little legends. And the thing that really sparked it was I was talking to a friend of mine, Kwesi Johnson, who went to grad school with me, is a filmmaker, is a black man, and is a father. And he was just talking about, you know, something his kid went through on the playground. And he just, the way he phrased it, he was like, you know, it's just, there are things that you have to consider when you're trying to raise a son, a black son in America through a feminist perspective. I was like, wow, yeah, I don't have kids and I never have to think about that. And I thought, I was just thinking about his little boy. I was thinking about all the little boys who come to my screen, my readings, and they're like, when's the book for boys coming out? And I'm always like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't have an answer for you. And so that was the transition I needed to help really consider how I could tell these stories, to learn that it's not about me, but there's something that I can offer in my translation or I guess my lens, my perspective, and particularly, I think, the empathy that I can connect. I wasn't sure that I could, but, you know, there, there, there are ways. There are ways I found to connect to the stories. So that's how I got to writing Little Legends. Wow, that's amazing. In the Little Leaders book, you wrote, I'm just going to read this quote, they saw things that no one else did. They asked questions no one else was asking, and they chose to do something about it. And you repeatedly credit persistence and willingness to make mistakes with their success over time. Do you think that's what makes a leader? Do you think that's sounds like that's some of those characteristics you've used yourself or yeah. you possess yourself, I should say? Thank you. I, I'm not sure. I feel like, you know, you don't have to be big or bold to be a leader. And I, I feel like I constantly am trying to impress upon press that idea, especially with the little leaders books and especially with the way the little leaders are designed. Those are things that I think think are just really special about the visionary women I wrote about. Just, you know, I think the thing that's so special is there are these connecting threads that, you know, sometimes you may not be appreciated in your time. You may not be understood, but, you know, pushing forward and pushing through that can lead to wonderful and incredible things. You had some people you profiled who are still living mm-hmm. and many who are not still living. Mm-hmm. Did you send this book to the living legends? Like, have you had a communication relationships with some of those people? I, I mean, definitely through the publisher. I personally don't have a direct line to Oprah. If you do, <laughs> let me know. I do not. I do not. Sorry. <laughs> but yeah, I know that, I, I know that we just tried to send a copy to... Yeah, Venus or Serena. Yeah, I don't know if they got a copy, no. but I do... I, <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I, it's hard to know. I think we send them out. And yeah, if, you never know. We yeah. just can pray and hope they got it. I think <laughs> I, I'm pretty certain that Julie Dash, who's one of the filmmakers I wrote about in Little Leaders, she posted a picture of her copy. And so that's really special because she's like a very impressive woman. And I met her when I was in grad school and, and just seeing her films and, and meeting her really transformed my whole grad school experience. So so that means a whole lot to me that she got it. That's awesome. If you were to think about yourself and like the rest of your career and your life, this is sort of a bigger question. <laughs> and you were going to be in one of these books yourself. Let's say like a mini Vashti comes along mm-hmm. in like 60 years. So it's like making a little leaders or little visionaries or whatever. How would you like your bio to read at that point? Oh, well, I don't know for sure. Writing bios are really hard. It's so hard to kind of distill a whole person's life down into 300 words. But the only thing I would want for any person to know from my story in the future 
I feel like I feel like our society is so like really into Cinderella stories. And the story I told you about gaining success and getting into the book world, it feels like a Cinderella story. I don't want that to like diminish like the hard work and the struggles because I think that that's what made it all worth it in, in the end. So I, I would hope that people know that, you know, even without the success, you know, the passion that I have for making the art is really what drives me. And so you don't have to have like bestsellers or, you know, awards or whatever to, to know that that means so much to be able to express yourself and to be able to share that with, with at least one person who gets it and is, you know, transformed or excited by it. And tell me about one of the struggles maybe that you faced or one of the things you went up against on your way to your multiple best-selling books. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Obviously, like I said, when I first began illustrating, I really didn't think I could do it. I mean, it's scary to go after a creative career, especially when I was a little kid. One of my favorite movies was Harriet the Spy. And I think that came out probably, I was under 10 years old. And I watched it nonstop. It was a Nickelodeon VHS tape, so it was bright orange. But I learned the word starving artist from that movie. So that's not the kind of thing I would hope any 10-year-old has to know. But I was terrified of what it means to, to try to be a professional artist. So, you know, there were so many times where I thought, oh, my gosh, I, you know, I have to, I can't, I can't let anybody know that I'm doing this. I can't let anybody know that this is what I want to do. You know, I forced myself in, you know, it sort of felt like I was like running on a treadmill and going nowhere, applying for all those other jobs because I wasn't ready to like own up to the fact that I really want to try to become a professional artist. So, I mean, I think one of the biggest struggles for me was just getting over my own fear. Mm-hmm. That is a huge hurdle yeah. like for any, especially for creative endeavors. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you did. <laughs> what other books do you have in mind? Like what's coming next for you or what other nonfiction books? Or- I don't have anything specific that I'm working on. It's hard to know. It's hard to pick one thing, especially because mm-hmm. it's been like three intense, three and a half intense years of work, work, work that over the years I've like got this growing list of things I could be doing or things I want to work on. And so now that I've got time, I'm like, okay, wait, where do I start? So I would, you know, in my time in in film school, I worked on a number of like narrative film ideas that I would really love to translate into like some highly illustrated middle grade. But I don't know. I mean, now that I feel like I'm really thinking about my reader for the consumer, I ask questions of myself that are like, well, which book does the world need now? Do any, does anybody need this book? Or, you know, which one should I focus on? Which one will bring me joy right now? So I don't know yet. I mean, it's a weird thing to commodify your artwork. So sometimes I just want to work on drawings and don't post them and share them with anybody or sell them or just, I just want to make them for myself. So that helps, you know, helps me remember why I do this and it's a little bit restorative. So there's some things that nobody gets to see that I'm working on. But I really would love to work on some fiction. The nonfiction has been really fun. I had no idea. Like, I would never have guessed that I would be, that I would have three nonfiction books out. So I hope to have the time and the space and the right mindset to work on something longer fiction. And when you're not working and illustrating, what do you like to do with your time? Wait, what's that? Free free time? <laughs> do you have any time that's not <laughs> um, spent working? Or My sister lives here. We go to the movies. We go to... 
We get dressed up and go to a nice dinner every once in a while. And my parents are so supportive. They, they like love it. So they're always ready and willing to come visit. But I get inspired by, you know, looking at other work. So it was just the New York Film Festival. And, you know, I'm still connected with all of my film friends. So I go watch movies and try to remember that there are other ways to express myself and there are ways that you can make art and not have to think about selling it and making it for other people. I like going to like festivals and I went to Comic-Con, didn't tell anybody, didn't go with anybody. I just like to go and look at stuff and kind of absorb content. So yeah, but in that way, it sort of is all a little bit like work. So maybe I need to figure out how to not be working. I feel like you keep saying that there are things that you didn't tell anybody, like you secretly like yeah, to do yeah. this. I feel like that should be your next book, like <laughs> things I secretly do because I'm too afraid to tell anybody <laughs> and how they end up being like the best things ever. <laughs> do, you, um, do you have any advice for aspiring artists like yourself or aspiring authors since you're both author and illustrator? The most important things that I feel like I've learned over the years I watched this like really great video essay really early before before I ever began pursuing illustration called The Long Game. Um, the video essay is by this guy, Adam Westbrook, and he goes through kind of the history of Leonardo da Vinci and some of history's greatest achievers and kind of breaks it down that many of these people who we believe to be the most successful people in the world all had this period in their life where They just had to take a step back and just put in the work and put in the time. Like Marie Curie spent seven years in poverty in Paris studying radioactivity before she ever achieved any acclaim. Leonardo da Vinci spent 16 years drawing and painting and being kind of considered, you know, a washed up artist before he painted The Last Supper. And that was his big break when he was 46 years old, when at a time 30 was considered like old age and what John Coltrane spent 17 years playing the saxophone, studying before he ever had a commercial hit. And so for me, I know that doesn't mesh well with my my very Cinderella story, but I it was really important for me to hear that and know that if you really care about the thing that you're working on, you should feel comfortable knowing that, you know, whatever version of success you're looking for, it may take time. And as long as you are interested in developing your body of work and putting in the time and the practice, you know, it could be worth it. It should be worth it. And you should just feel fine with letting, you know, letting yourself know that it doesn't have to happen right away. And then the other thing that I always quote is this quote from Walt Stanchfield, who was an educator, kind of a sketch artist and an artist at the Disney studios. And he said that we all have 10,000 bad drawings inside of us. The sooner we get them out, the better. (laughs) And I feel like that applies to writing and drawing and pretty much everything else. And it sort of is, I like the way he phrases it, like they're all inside of us and they just have to get them out. It's not, it's not that you don't have the capacity to be a better Per, or writer or artist. It's just that you just got to get the bad stuff out. And so that means you have to put in the time and put in the work. And those, those two things help remind me that, you know, anything, whatever version of success happens, it, it, it could all change. But as long as you are enjoying the process, you know, it may not be perfect at all times, but it's still going to be worth it because you, you have put in the time and the effort. So I hope that helps other people. I love that. I love that visual of sort of the funnel of the bad ideas and just the trash can. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, the award-winning podcast. 
This episode has been sponsored by Book of the Month Club. Bookofthemonthclub.com. Enter code Zibby to get your first book for just $5. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at Zibby at ZibbyOwens.com. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today... We're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.